Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Sarah Walsh, and I am a partner at Robbins Kaplan in our Boston office. I am a member of the White Collar Section Steering Committee here at the BBA, um, and I'm so happy to host these terrific panelists with me here today. Um, here at Robbins, I work in the business litigation group with a particular focus on government enforcement actions um, and employment matters. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about recent trends in criminal uh, anti-poaching cases and also just general competition law cases, uh, including potentially wage fixing and certainly what's happening in the trade secret market. Um, we have three outrageously incredible panelists here today. We're a cross-disciplinary panel, which is a lot of fun for me. Um, and so they're gonna each talk to you about their perspective on these cases from their vantage point and their practice areas and areas of expertise. Uh, so to start, I'd love to just take a quick minute and introduce you all to everybody. Um, first, we have Lindsay Cruiser. Lindsay is a litigation partner at Choke where she specializes in labor and employment matters. Uh, Lindsay represents employers in the high tech and biotech space, as well as educational institutions, healthcare companies and alike. Lindsay handles all aspects of employment matters on behalf of private equity, venture capital, and strategic investors, um, including issues like employment diligence, regulatory and transactional issues. Lindsay also advises companies on harassment investigations, terminations and RIFs, disability and leave issues, non-compete, and other um, post-employment restrictions, and pretty much any issue facing an employer. Um, Lindsay writes and speaks regularly on all of these topics and is actively involved in the legal community, including on the steering committee for the employment section here at the BBA. Uh, next, we have Pyle Salzberg. Um, Pyle's a partner at Laredo and Smith, where she specializes in business litigation and white collar work where she represents corporations, small companies, and individuals in business disputes, false claims act litigation, and internal and government investigations. Pyle is actively involved in the BBA and is co-chair of its business and commercial litigation section. In, her, in addition to her work at the BBA, Pyle is also co-president of SABA here in Boston, the South Asian Bar Association of Greater Boston. She's on the board of directors for the WBA and is a member of the Asian American Lawyer Association and is a member uh, with me um, with the Women in White Collar Defense Association both here in Boston and also has a national profile with the WWCDA. Fortunately for all of us, um, we all tap pile to speak on our panels and we guilt her into saying yes. So um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Pyle. Um, also, we, it can't go unmentioned, Pyle spends a considerable amount of her time volunteering with various community service organizations and nonprofit organizations here in Boston. Um, Pyle has too many awards to mention, but I do just want to acknowledge that just last night she was honored by the WBA and the Women of Color Committee, where she was recognized as an honoree of the annual Pioneering Women of Color celebration. So congratulations on that. Um, and last but certainly not least, we have Greg Bombard. Greg is a shareholder at the Boston office of Greenberg Traurig where he works as a trial lawyer on all things trade secret related. Um, Greg focuses his work on intellectual property disputes, including claims of trade secret misappropriation. Um, Greg's trade secret clients are primarily in high tech, including biotech, med device, software, robotics, fintech, and manufacturing. And certainly as an expert um, on all things trade secret, Greg is also an author of the ABA's Guide to Protecting and Litigating Trade Secrets, the second edition. Um, and he also co-chairs the ABA's Trade Secret Litigation Subcommittee. So with that outstanding group of panelists and those very impressive backgrounds, I'm looking forward to diving in today. We are aiming for a interactive and collaborative discussion. So with that said, any questions at any time, please send them in the chat and we'll do our best to address them immediately. Um, we're going to be talking about a pretty big issue today, just competition law generally, no poach trade secret, no poach and trade secret cases, what's ha happening on the criminal front, and 
our thoughts on how that's impacting all of our respective practice areas. Um, so although we're going to have as much interaction as we can to start, I'd love to ask our panelists for their perspective on these cases and how it's impacting their practice areas and what they're seeing for their clients, both sort of now and in the more immediate future. Um, Lindsay, can we start with you? Yes, that's great. Thank you so much for the introduction, Sarah. So I'm here today to talk a little bit about the employer perspective here. And it's interesting because some of the more recent case law development, particularly in the criminal area, has had less impact directly on what we think of as employment agreements. But I think there are still a number of important considerations for employers. So I just wanted to start, um, since we have a multidisciplinary audience today, with a high level background of some of what employers think about and the types of agreements they have their employees sign. So I would say like from an employer perspective, it's become almost market and something that people expect at nearly every job now to sign some sort of restrictive covenant agreement, either when they start employment or at certain touch points throughout employment. And these can really run a large range. You know, nearly all of them will have protection of trade secrets. I know Greg's going to talk some more on this, this topic later, but they'll have some sort of protection of both confidential information and trade secrets, and will also have assignment of inventions. And then beyond that, depending on the company, depending on geography, depending on the employee's level of seniority, you'll often see different restrictive covenants, including non-solicitation of employees. So we think of that as falling into this no poaching type of space, non-solicitation of customers, and sometimes non-competition. And I, I think, you know, a lot of time is spent on the non-competition agreements because that's a really popular topic, both from a legislative and a judiciary perspective these days. There are, And there's a real range in different states of what people sign. When it comes to the, the non-poaching, the non-solicitation agreements where the concept is if you leave your employer that you can't solicit other employees to leave to go with you to a new competitor or to a new similar company. It's pretty common, especially for more senior employees in basically every state for those to be part of restrictive covenants. Um, over the last five to 10 years, there's been pushback, I think first, especially in California, and then more with this antitrust flavor that we're seeing both in certain states and from the federal government. So I, and I think it's helpful to think about when it comes to these no poach for employers, when, where, and why you're having your employees sign it. So like I said, a lot of people sign it at the outset of employment. And I would say that's a place where we see less pushback and less enforcement um, in anywhere except, frankly, California. Sometimes um, employers will ask employees to sign these types of no poach agreements in as part of separation agreements if they're paying severance. I think particularly if the person doesn't already have a valid non-solicitation of employees agreement. And I think even more so if the employer is worried about that particular employee recruiting people to leave. Both of those instances, so the initial employment and the separation agreement, has been less of a focus, particularly from the antitrust perspective of the types of enforcement that we're talking about today, where we see, I think, the greatest kind of pushback and also the greatest potential risk for employers is in the situation I'm going to talk about now. So you've got your either from your separation agreement or your employment agreement, a non-solicitation. One of your employees leaves, they either start a new business that's competitive or ancillary to your business, or they go to um, another company, and then they start recruiting your employees. I always say that this is, among employers, one of the most sensitive issues and touch points where we really see clients wanting to think about or at least threaten litigation. So what typically happens in these situations is 
client will come to you and the first step is sending a cease and desist letter. So sending a letter both to the employee who left and is recruiting or poaching people and also typically either copying or directly to the new company, particularly if you think that the company is involved or complicit or encouraging your former employee to lift either individual employees or especially groups of employees from your company. And then some of those, and I, I think, you know, Greg and I have both seen situations like that. Some of those cases, right, do wind up litigated, but a vast, vast majority of them end up with some type of settlement. And the settlement is usually a multi-party settlement that involves both the, you know, implicated employee or employees who violated their agreement and oftentimes the new business that they've gone to. And, and this is where the antitrust concerns have arisen in a number of the court cases that we've seen over the past several years. Because you have, you know, business A agreeing with business B, oftentimes a competitor, not to hire their employees for some fixed amount of time. And that's where you really do start to get the antitrust overlay. And so I would say, and I'll be interested in hearing what Payal and Greg have to say, but I've seen a lot of pushback in this space, especially in the last few years, that whatever settlement you're reaching can't include this business-to-business -business non-solicitation. And candidly, I, I think that that is among all the types of agreements we've talked about where the biggest risk of this potentially escalating to either a criminal, a, you know, criminal violation or a civil investigation um, will, will arise. Uh, you know, in addition to give the antitrust perspective, another piece you will see, particularly if this is a you know just a civil litigation that winds up in state court or or even in federal court, is just the public policy concern. So there are a lot of judges who just don't like the idea that you're impeding employee mobility by saying that you know an employee from Microsoft can never go to Apple or an employee from Nike can never go to Reebok, right? Like employees are trained in certain skill sets and have you know, specializations in certain industries and the notion that employees can't freely move somewhere else um, is, is something that really a lot of judges don't like. Um, so it puts employers in a hard place. When I was thinking about kind of practical advice today and what should employers do, you know, there's the reality that for most companies, or at least for a lot of companies, their employees are, are their most valuable, if not one of their most valuable assets. So it's like, especially like in the modern era, kind of your employees plus your IP, and there's a lot of overlap there, is, is often the valuable assets that a, that a business has more than, you know, like physical real estate or tangible property. It really is those things. And, you know, employers, I think, generally speaking, and I'm, there are exceptions, right? They're not most of the employers that I talk to aren't looking to prevent their employees from ever leaving, right? Like you can't do that, right? You can make the place, you can make it a really nice company to work at. You can do a lot of things to try to retain people, but you, at the end of the day, can't prevent mobility. But where the concern arises is companies want to prevent unfair competition, right? They want to prevent their investment in groups of people and pieces of IP and then have literally an entire group or a majority of a group just move over to another business or start their own business. And so when you're looking at kind of where the right space is, where you're not potentially running afoul of antitrust concerns, but where you're also able to protect truly protectable interests is, you know, how we try to draft and think about these agreements. So, you know, and we'll, we can get into this more in the questions and more as, as we talk together as a panel. But when I'm thinking about this for employers, you really want to identify what your protectable interests are, make your agreements as narrow as possible. And I think wherever possible, you really do have to be wary of the business to business agreements, because I think between, you know, the DOJ memo that we saw, I think about five years ago and the new DOJ cases and what we're seeing from state attorneys, attorneys general, the the types of like, I won't hire your employees, you don't hire mine, business to business is where I see the largest risk for, for companies and employers. Right. Thank you so much, Lindsay. There's obviously a ton to talk about here. 
overlay with Greg's work. And then I'm excited to hear what Pyle has to say about the recent string of cases. But let's piggyback on what Lindsay was just saying, Greg, if you don't mind, if you could highlight what you're seeing in your practice. Sure. Um, you know, this is just such an interesting topic and an interesting manifestation of a few different trends that are sort of happening at the same time. One is you have this moment in corporate America where employee mobility is higher than it ever has been in history. People are, are just culturally more comfortable moving jobs and jumping from a competitor to a competitor. Um, with the advent of technology, it's also much easier to take information with you when you leave a job um, and the sort of measures that an employee would have had to go to in the 50s to take secret schematics out of a, an, an employer would be extreme. And the measures that they would have to employ today are very simple. A, a thumb drive or even a cloud account makes it very easy to just carry stuff. You don't even have to carry it anymore. Uh, to take stuff out of a, a company. So you have that trend. And then you have this countervailing trend of political hostility to non-compete agreements or agreements that limit employee mobility in any way. And, uh, and then layered on top of it, you also have a new federal law, the Defend Newish federal law, the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. And that, that statute, which created for the first time a federal civil cause of action for trade secret misappropriation, has really changed the practice of, of trade secret litigation in, in, in interesting ways. It, it created a federal cause of action, opening up federal court jurisdiction for what historically had been a state cause of action and something that really was considered to be like an HR issue. You had someone leave with a customer list or confidential information that was has historically just been like an employment or HR issue. Now, you see trade secret claims added into patent cases with a lot of regularity. Um, you see competitors suing each other in federal court for trade secret misappropriation um, only. You know, that might be the only claims, two competitors and, and one count or two counts of trade secret misappropriation and nothing else. That sort of thing uh, was not common in the past. So you, it's an interesting time, right? So what we're talking about really is a mounting federal hostility. And Lindsay, you mentioned state attorneys general and state, um, state legislation as well. You just see this like political hostility to non-compete agreements in general. It's not just the enforcement actions that we're talking about today. It's also the FTC has proposed a, an all-out ban on non-compete agreements. And then just recently, the general counsel of the NLRB has expressed her opinion that all non-compete agreements are probably violations of the NLRA. So you just have this moment where non-compete agreements are under a lot of scrutiny, while you also have a rising tide of, of trade secret claims. Um, so how does all of this, what does all of this mean? You know, non-compete agreements slot in as one of the ways of protecting trade secrets. And just so we have the nomenclature down for everybody, tra a trade secret under the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act is very broad. Um, and I actually have, if you'll permit me to share, I have a slide here to show how broad this is. Give me one second. Great. Hopefully people can see this. A, a trade secret under the trade secret, the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act, and also all state law, every state's law, is it encompasses any type of information as long as the owner of that information has taken reasonable measures to keep it secret and can show that it derives independent economic value by being not generally known and not generally or readily ascertainable by proper means. As long as the, the information checks those boxes, it can be anything. So some examples, this is like everything that a company can have that's not published or patented, from source code all the way down to customer lists or business plans. This is just an extremely broad definition. So it can cover all sorts of different things. 
the, the traditionally what we have instructed or recommended to clients is that you have this is like hopefully easy to understand but the idea is everybody at your company should be covered by an nda and then there's some maybe subset either by geography where it's permitted or by importance to the company you can have some subset of people who are subject to non-compete agreements restrictive covenants some people will take information. You maybe send them a reminder letter. It's what Lindsay, Lindsay was talking about. Maybe in some cases you're asking for certifications that they haven't used the information. And then you hope in a very, very, very narrow point of this triangle, do you actually end up in litigation? So what's interesting about this trend of, uh, of hostility towards non-compete agreements is that the second item here, restrictive covenants, could just go away. It's, it's a protection that that has historically been uh, loved by the the lawyers that it's a way of protecting confidential information trade secrets from employees leaving and going to a competitor but that may disappear and even under the FTC's proposed non-compete ban that first ban the first layer of defense of NDAs you know they they say in that proposed rule that overbroad non-disclosure agreements could also be subject to the ban so you're potentially losing a couple of your tools to protect trade secrets and the, the question that we're answering a lot is, well, what is all, what are we supposed to do? What do we do about this? And I think you, know, you can, there's a lot of different angles to this. None of this has really culminated yet. There is no non-compete ban. There's a lot of runway between now and whatever ends up happening. So we'll see. But for some companies where their um, claim to trade secret protection is the least, like, you know, if you're talking about the formula, secret formula for your your drug product or something that has not been patented or a, a method for manufacturing cells, those things are, it's easy to demonstrate to a judge why those things are are confidential and, and should be subject to trade secret protection. It's the, it's the sort of quasi things, the customer list, goodwill, the types of things that traditionally and historically have supported non-compete agreements, but Without non-compete agreements, it might be more difficult either to detect their use or to prove that they qualify for trade secret protection. And so for those companies that rely heavily on non-compete agreements as a first line of defense, what we're seeing is this really comes down to you're going to refocus now on thinking through those elements of a trade secret. You have to take reasonable measures to protect it in order to prove that you had a trade secret if you end up in litigation. But you should also be thinking about that in terms of just practically. You don't want to be in litigation. So what are the steps that you should be taking if you can't just rely on a non-compete agreement anymore? What are the steps you should be taking to make sure that your information remains protected? Confidentiality agreements other than non-compete agreements. Training employees to make sure that they understand the importance of confidentiality and they understand the, the importance that the company places on it not to be sending stuff outside the company without permission. So if I had one takeaway from all of this, it's the refocusing on training, refocusing on uh, thinking more intentionally about how we're gonna prevent the information from walking out the door if we're not able to prevent the employees from walking out the door. And I definitely hope we can talk about next steps or proactive advice that we give to our clients. That's, I think, an important takeaway for everybody today. But if I could, Pyle, I'd love for you to comment on, you know, we've had this history of litigation with all of these complex issues. What's the turn to criminal? What's happening in the market? Um, why are these traditionally civil litigation issues now turning criminal? So, um, it, it's it, even for people who are practicing in the white collar criminal defense um, field, it, it's, it's a little surprising. So going back five years, uh, Lindsay mentioned to the DOJ FTC guidance, where they'd initially put out a guidance that said, look, naked wage fixing, which is companies getting together outside of a legitimate collaborative venture type of relationship and wage fixing, um, those type of agreements and no poach agreements between companies, not a company and its employees, but between companies who may or may not be competitors, but typically competitors, are per se illegal and can lead to criminal charges. So that was the guidance that was given in 2016 by the DOJ and the FTC. 
But even though it said it was it could lead to criminal charges, the, the DOJ wasn't really enforcing it in the criminal uh, sense. They were only pursuing civil liability under the Sherman Act. Then in 2021, there was an executive order by President Biden on promoting competition, where again, this issue came up and it said, you know, employers who are competitors in the market, they are trying to consolidate the labor market. They're trying to consolidate the labor marketplace. Now, I, I, I use the word market and marketplace because typically the Sherman Act in the antitrust field is used for um, companies that are trying to, you know, working in a particular marketplace and they are either um, working together to, in a way that violates the antitrust law. But when it comes to the context that we're talking about with employ employee mobility, um, the AAG, um, Assistant Attorney General Cantor of the antitrust division of the a a DOJ said, look, from the executive order um, that was in 2021 and the DOJ FTC guidance in 2016, we've been instructed to be more vigilant in protecting workers in the labor marketplace. And that's kind of where this whole criminalization process started. And the first few cases we saw were in 2020. I think there have been about four cases that have um, played out either through trial or through pleas. Um, and the DOJ, even though it has been successful in the sense of creating law that establishes that these type of um, agreements between companies, whether it's wage fixing or no poach agreements are per se illegal. When it actually comes down to proving those cases in front of a jury with the facts, the DOJ has not been very successful. And, it, and, and I'm not saying it's because you know, it, it's not a good way for the DOJ to enforce what it says it's going to, you know, intended on doing in protecting workers, it's just the cases that they've picked up to this point for criminal enforcement have not been the most factually helpful to their cause. Um, and, you know, we can talk about those cases a little bit more, but um, those cases, three of them resulted in straight up acquittals by the jury um, and one uh, directed verdict by a judge. Uh, one was a plea agreement and one was a deferred prosecution agreement for an employee um, of a company who the company had taken a plea. And as to, despite these losses on a, at least on a factual issue, the DOJ has stated, you know, put, they've made statements, the Assistant Attorney General Cantor has said, look, we are going to continue prosecutions in a criminal um, aspect of the Sherman Act, um, specifically on no poach and uh, wage fixing allegations. And, you know, it's, a, it, it's an issue of finding a case where the facts really support itself, uh, lend itself to a jury finding a company or the individuals in the company guilty. Now, remember the, the bar for meeting a guilty um, standard is much higher. That's why probably the DOJ has been having trouble with that because in the civil context, it's the preponderance of the evidence, but beyond a reasonable build out, um, juries are probably, sounds like they're having a difficult time uh, trying to send people to prison for, what would be a company to company B2B agreement, um, whether it is an agreement that doesn't really play out because in reality, even though the agreement existed, wages weren't affected. Maybe um, only certain one or two individuals were affected uh, in terms of employees. So I think juries are having a tough time convicting for you know, sending people to jail for entering into what used to be at least up to this point perfectly you know, legitimate agreements so long as they had those boundaries and their ge geographic, the time limitations. Um, so I think that's kind of what we are looking at from the white collar criminal defense bar. And Sarah, I'll hold off on going into those cases unless you want me to jump into them. Well, I think, you know, if we have time or if people have questions, um, Pyle, you can comment on the specific cases that you've cited. We're happy to give those sites after um, or during. But let's just stay sort of on that topic for just a moment. I mean, the government has now said, look, we're not going to back off. We may not have had success right out of the gate, but we think these are you know, no, these are really respectable approach and they're righteous cases. I think I've, I've read that quote. Um, where does that leave us and our client in trade secret, in employment, general business led, you know, what tone do you think it sets for our clients on how seriously to take a potential criminal enforcement action? 
Um, so a lot of it has to, you know, has been covered by Greg and Lindsay as to what you tell your clients when it comes to getting your employees to enter into um, whether it's NDAs, restrictive agreements. Um, the one thing I would also suggest to anybody who's advising a business in the setting is be very careful about having discussions or agreements with competitors that relate to a market share about um, the marketplace, whether you're trying to, you know, you may not be in it to try to violate the Sherman Act. Obviously nobody's in it to violate any policies, but the, be really aware that the government is coming after these types of agreements. So be careful about um, having discussions that could potentially restrain competition. Um, do internal audits and investigations to evaluate risk and exposure from your existing agreements. If you've got these type of horizontal agreements with competitors in the same business. Um, hire outside counsel to look at that. Uh, if you don't have in, um, in, you know, in-house counsel that is uh, familiar with these antitrust implications, in, especially in the criminal context, get outside counsel and figure out if self-disclosure is appropriate, if you know, it's a level of risk and exposure that you're worried about. You also want to avoid discussing or negotiating or get entering into definitely written agreements. Um, in that are regarding employee compensation. And this comes out of a couple of cases in the healthcare field. Um, that's where the government, the DOJ has focused in the healthcare world with dialysis providers, nursing home uh, healthcare providers about how you're going to um, price, for example, um, price out if it's a home healthcare provider and you're sending out uh, traveling nurses um, who are caretakers, don't enter into these agreements with other home health care providers that set the rate for what those nurses are going to get paid on an hourly basis or on a per job basis. Those type of things are being looked at very, very carefully by the DOJ and the DOL. The one thing that um, there's a memo out there that the DOJ and the DOL, the Department of Labor, have agreed to cooperate with each other to the extent that if somebody drops a dime on a company to one of them, let's say to the DOL, they're going to investigate it and especially keeping in mind um, the antitrust aspect of it. And then to the extent that there's something there, they might refer it to the DOJ. So now these two um, organizations and agencies are talking to each other to figure out whether there is not just criminal, but also continuing civil enforcement actions being brought against companies. And then as um, you know, both Greg and Lindsay said, you limit non-competes to only employees that legitimately have access to company secrets and make sure they're limited in time, place, manner, um, you know, whatever the geography is. No, not, no blanket non-competes. Again, this is both in the state setting as well as in the federal setting. Blanket non-competes are being essentially, I mean, they're being done away with. And um, it's surprising, you know, we're trying to separate it by state and federal, but we've at least seen in one case in Nevada where it was a state case for trade secrets and the DOJ stepped in as an interested party and um, you know, statement of interest in a Nevada state case. And they said, hey, judge, parties, uh, just to remind you that this may be a federal violation of the Sherman Act too. Now that you know, it's been filed, the DOJ is not taking any action within that you know, the state case. But the fact that the DOJ again is stepping into state um, cases and you know, raising the flag saying, we're sitting out here, we're watching this, um, needs to be something that your clients are aware of. So taking the, um, the Sherman Act and the Defense of Trade Secret Act, uh, we have, our clients have parallel concerns always, right? We've got civil concerns we've highlighted. Now we have potential criminal enforcement concerns. I'm curious from the panel, perhaps Greg or Lindsay, of your client base, what industries do you think are most at risk for now really having to focus on potential criminal actions? That's tough. I think most of what we've seen so far has been in healthcare for, you know, some of the reasons we've discussed already, because, it, you know, for I think at least at the outset for criminal, the DOJ, you know, despite their kind of lack of success is trying to go for low hanging fruit where they can see like a, a detriment that might resonate with a jury um, to your average employee. So, if it looks like businesses are fixing wages um, in order to you know, save labor, save 
costs for themselves on labor, that that is something that, you know, you could see potentially resonating with a jury as there being a real harm, right? And so it's not just like, oh, you've got this agreement out there that used to be fine 10 years ago, and now it's not fine. And it was harder for, you know, this person to go to the exact company they wanted to go to. I think they're looking for more something like you have workers and oftentimes not highly compensated workers. So you've got hourly workers and that there was some artificial deflation to their wages because of the agreement. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the, the, the healthcare workers and home healthcare workers and healthcare workers that are placed in, you know, third-party settings, I think that that was a really easy target in terms of predicting what comes next. Um, you know, I, I I'd be interested in what everyone else thinks, but it, it's, you know, always you think about you know, tech industry jobs or, you know, especially if you get into, you know, some of the more junior jobs in the tech industry, um, that's an industry where there's a lot of demand from employees, especially, you know, oftentimes younger employees to have quite a bit of mobility. And as Greg touched on earlier, we're seeing a cultural shift where people, you know, there's not a stigma to having a new job every couple of years, right? So it's, you're seeing that demand. And so I personally see, I think the most pushback um, from employees in tech spaces, um, you know, my clients in those spaces see the most pushback for their employees. So to the extent that the DOJ or the DOL is at least in part basing their enforcement based on tips or employee complaints, I, I would see, you know, tech being a place where that could arise. Greg, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question because you can think of industries where you're very unlikely to have this be an issue. And what I mean by that is you're only going to have, the DOJ is only going to pursue these types of agreements where they're, go they're going to be able to get some sort of resolution, right? They're, they're hoping to get some sort of consent order uh, and where the effect of that consent order is going to be significant. So they, they, there's no interest in going after like small biotech startup in Cambridge. That's not, that, that entity doesn't have the market power to affect that many employees. But where you've seen these high profile um, investigations or settlements or trials have been where you've had agreements between very large competitors in a in a space where you had a small number of qualified employees. And so just two examples, around the same time that that memo that Pyle was talking about came out, there was some, there was a settlement with um, like some of the big tech companies, it's like Apple and Google maybe. And they had agreed, you know, there was, the allegation was that they had agreed not to hire each other's engineers. That's an example of, a, of an industry where you have like a very, very technical, specialized workforce and there are very, very few people, just period, who can do the, the types of jobs that they need done. So it's sort of, you know, in a way, it's probably the most tempting as a, as a business to enter into one of these agreements in that space. Like, we're going to agree not to poach each other's engineers. That sounds like a great idea in the, in the room. And it's only afterwards or when lawyers get involved that anyone thinks, that may not have actually that may have actually been a criminal act. So you have that. And then uh, recently the the federal trial in Connecticut involving Raytheon and some other defense contractors, where, you know, again, the, the number of available workers who have security clearances and are talented engineers and are willing to, you know, do this work, that's a very small talent pool. And the allegations in that case were that, some, you know, some managers of these companies had essentially had a, a handshake agreement not to hire each other's engineers. So again, you have the, the common denominator between these things is big entrenched industry uh, participants who have market power, who have the ability by making this agreement to actually affect the market for talent. And then the, the sort of small talent pool. If you had a you know, I don't know, like a anti-competitive agreement between two large, 
I don't know, trucking companies. I, I this is a complete. I'm no, making this up on the fly. It's perfect. It's just sort of it, it. It seems less likely. And there may be other factors that would go into an investigation like that, but it seems less likely that that's going to end up being something where you know you're going to be the target of a DOJ investigation for that reason. So um, I guess you know the 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 real answer is it's only in the cases where it would be most tempting to enter into such an agreement that and most useful to enter into such an agreement where the client really needs to be careful about doing so. And so I guess the advice to everyone should be the same, right? Just, just don't do it if, if at all possible. These things, you know, non-compete enforcement of non-compete agreements, no poach agreements, um, and other restrictive covenants, they they often sound better in theory than really in practice, right? It's like everybody wants, every employer wants to have non-compete agreements with all, if they could, they'd have non-compete agreements with everybody. They'd be unlimited in time and scope. In reality, uh, are they going to spend the money to go like chase after people who leave to go work for a competitor that's not perceived as a really a competitive threat? Probably not. And then when, you know, you know, one interesting thing that happened in our practice in Massachusetts is in the, in 2018, you had this significant change in Massachusetts non-compete law going from the sort of traditional rule of reason, as long as it's supported by a legitimate business purpose, limited in scope, limited in geography, you can enforce any kind of non-compete agreement. And now the law has dramatically changed with all of these restrictions from the Massachusetts Non-Compete Act. So you have to provide notice, you have to, there has to be limited in various ways, you have to pay the employee for the non-competition period. So when that change happened, we had a lot of clients just sort of go through the process of how do I comply with this? And then upon realizing the complexity of compliance and the, all the various ways you can mess it up, uh, even with the best advice, once the lawyers are gone, it's very easy to just screw up the procedural requirements now in Massachusetts for having an enforceable non-compete. We had clients just saying, you know what, never mind. We don't want or need to enforce non-compete agreements in Massachusetts anymore. We'll just do this the way we would in California, where we're going to rely on trade secret protection and assume the, you know, that our employees are going to um, abide by their non-disclosure agreements. So it, you know, it's interesting because the ease at which some companies just sort of walked away from standard non-compete agreements suggests that or could suggest, one could argue, that the, the non-compete agreements that they had in place before were not necessary, right? Everyone, again, it's, in theory, they were great. In practice, no one was ever enforcing them. And when it became even slightly more difficult to enforce or to, to implement a non-compete agreement, they just went away. And this is maybe the same moment in time on a, on a federal level. Now you have so much headwind in, in, in non-compete agreements, including notably this NLRB opinion that says, bring to us, please, any cases in which you see abusive use of, of non-competing agreements to depress wages. And we are going, the implication being the NLRB is going to go and investigate and enforce uh, against employers who use non-compete agreements at all. With that in mind, you have to be very intentional and thoughtful about whether you're going to require non-compete agreements for all of your non-supervisory employees, because now there's a risk that just doing that is going to lead to an enforcement action, or at least an investigation, neither of which any employer wants. I think that's right. I think we're seeing you know, the, the same trend that you talked about, Greg, um, that when it becomes a little bit more onerous to have the non-compete, a lot of employers are moving away from it. And I think that there's a very rational reason to do that when we also look at the reality of how these agreements are enforced by courts if you wind up going down that road. So it's, and, and here we're kind of putting aside the sale of business non-competes when someone sells their business to a third party, which are more enforceable just on their face. But if we're thinking about just non-competes with 
employees, even if you go to a state like Delaware, which, you know, a lot of companies would tell you like, that's the holy grail, right? If they could pick any choice of law they wanted, they would want to have their employees agree to a Delaware choice of law because they're incorporated there, which you know, ha has its own problems <laughs> under many states law, which I'll put aside. But even if you're there, the courts in Delaware, and we're seeing this nationwide, are really only enforcing non-competes if there's some type of plus factor. Like if you show that your trade secrets are being threatened by the competition, if you show that there is some something other than just losing the employee and losing the training costs and losing their value, you really have to show a plus factor to get one of these enforced. You have to show that your customers are being stolen or that your employees are being stolen or that your trade secrets are at risk. And so when you think about it, in a standard restrictive covenant agreement, we have separate covenants for all of those other pieces. So it, it's, I think we've reached a point in enforcement where enforcing just a non-compete because I don't like that my employee went to the competitor. I've got nothing else, but I can prove that the other business is a competitor and that the employee is there, that's not going to get you an injunction or damages in nearly any court in the U.S. So I do think employ employers are starting to, to think more critically, especially when it comes like in Massachusetts to do I want to pay for this non-compete? They're realizing that the non-compete itself may have a deterrent value, right? So there's some value to that. Um, it may be a way to at least you know, get some discovery to find out if there's other problems going on, but does it have a real dollar value? I mean, mo most employers are deciding it's not worth, you know, six months of the employee's pay or a significant bonus or what it would take to, to support it on compete by consider with consideration. Maybe different analysis when it gets to like your C-suite employees, but I think even with pretty senior employees, we're seeing a lot of employers shift away from the non-compete proper. What's so, the other thing in the, sorry, I was just going to jump in on the tech. Yeah, please do. You know, industry, it's just with the whole non-compete thing, if you, the industry and the technology is changing so fast that what you're trying to protect may not be that much that needs protection by the time the employee or the C-suite executive leaves. So I think that's kind of, uh, I, we're seeing in our tech clients too, that they're, you know, little in the long run is this something really worth protecting because the technology is changing so fast so what may be a secret today six months down the line maybe just you know open source at this point whether you're actually making money off of it to the extent that you want to protect it you know that's another consideration that your clients should be thinking about so given all of this all the different enforcement angles possibilities hooks out there I'd love to ask all of you, you know, just from my perspective, what caught my attention and my interest here is doing employment work and doing general business lit. When you hear, hey, there's a criminal enforcement angle out there that the government is pursuing. It's a new trend and we could potentially go after any of your clients for what used to be standard business practices. What, you know, what's our investment? How do we ask our clients to say, you need to prioritize a potential criminal action, or is it premature? Are we not there yet? Did this these string of cases demonstrate to us that we don't need to put a criminal enforcement action on our clients' radars right now? I think the law is still being made, um, and as e each of these cases comes out, and you know the iterative process of making. So initially, the first couple of cases that came out on this criminal um, no poach wage fi wage fixing issues initially was it's a per se violation and then it chipped away you know at, at the motion to dismiss stage well okay non-competes are not per se violation if uh they've got if there's if the government cannot show that there was the the reason behind it or the motivation for it was to stop competition in uh the marketplace so i think that the law is still being made which is why it makes it a little bit more difficult for our clients to be like hey you know don't do these steps um, and so the advice is a little bit more difficult to give because we don't right. know what's right, you know, what the government or what the courts are going to say is a per se violation and how to get around um, and defend against a per se allegation. Um, so I think right now it's a little bit premature, but it's something yeah. that clients should be aware is out there. I think it's something that uh, lawyers who practice in this space 
should be aware of, but I think it's a little premature to start worrying about criminal consequences. Yeah, I mean, I think Greg, you said something interesting. You said, you know, when lawyers aren't in the room, effectively asking ourselves, how do our clients behave when we're not there? We're all litigators. We kind of come in after the fact and we see these sorts of headlines, you know, it's being covered in mainstream press. Um, folks on the line may have seen a recent Forbes article saying, hey, is this premature? But we have questions about our clients. Um, and is, I guess I would ask, especially Greg and Lindsay and, and thinking of you, Lindsay, in particular with your clients, is there a bright line rule here? Anything you can say to your clients, hey, that used to be okay, but I'm telling you, given what's going on in the market right now, you've got to think about that from both the civil and criminal action. Or again, to Pyle's point, are we not there yet? I generally agree with Pyle that we're not quite there yet with potentially one caveat. I would want to have and advise any client to have a serious conversation with a lawyer if they're thinking about a business to business agreement. I do think that that, that will be more of the focus. Um, and I don't think the kind of individual agreements with employees are quite there yet on the criminal. Now, there are still a lot of civil considerations we need to think about. And, you know, when you're entering into an agreement, you know, with how quickly this area of law is evolving, if you make the decision on your new hires today to have them sign an agreement that really, really pushes the envelope of the law today, what does that agreement look like when you go enforce it and go try to enforce it in five years when the law has evolved even more? So I, I do think that there's an element of proactive thinking, even if the criminal piece is a little premature of, are we having employees sign agreements that we're confident won't look insane, you know, when a court or an agency looks at them. And, and realistically, you know, it, it is you because of the life cycle of how long an employee stays, especially an employee that you care about leaving and going to a competitor. They're usually someone who's put in at least a couple of years with you and oftentimes more in the three, four, five plus year range. So, you know, a lot of times when we're enforcing a non-compete now, it's something that was signed in 2018, 2019. We're not usually trying to enforce a lot of non-competes that were signed in 2022 by someone who just didn't, you know, work out for whatever reason. So I do think those are important concerns, but the, the business to business ones make me nervous, right? And so I think there are there are a range, you know, there are legitimate reasons to enter into business to business agreements. Um, you know, a lot of times in the deal context, if there are two companies that are considering a potential transaction, there are kind of carve outs for agreements where, you know, the no poach or the non-disclosure, whatever in those agreements is ancillary to discussing potential merger of the businesses. There are times you can do it. But, you know, all at any any time you're entering into a business to business, you should you should seek legal advice because I do think that that's where you could really run afoul. And I think to Pyle's point, that's where you could get into the allegations of wage fixing or the allegations of there really being some untoward motive to enter into this with a competitor or another business. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually, there's something we have not talked about at all in this hour, uh, which is another federal enforcement priority that's changed recently. And that's just on the straight up misappropriation of trade secrets. Good point. The, the, the 2016 Defend Trade Secrets Act was just an amendment to the 1996 Economic Espionage Act, which made it a, a criminal. Originally, it was a criminal offense to misappropriate trade secrets. And, uh, and there's also the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which at least in the civil context has sort of been defanged. But, the, but there's, the, there's a similar potential criminal implication to hacking into a system that you don't have authority to do. So there always was, or at least in recent memory, there was a, a criminal component to trade secret misappropriation. And, you know, it's the only type of IP theft that you can go to jail for. There's no criminal patent infringement. But in the past, it was very easy. You know, I'm on both sides of these cases all the time. And so when, a, when you're on the defense side, Clients, especially individuals, are rightly concerned when they get a demand letter. And some of the questions that just always come up is like, what are what is my potential liability? And, you know, is there some possibility that I could lose my license or I could lose my immigration status or I could go to jail? And it was so easy in the past to just say, no one's going to jail. Just calm down. It's fine. And you cannot say that anymore right. because the 
in the Trump administration, this, this refocus on um, misappropriation of, of trade secrets that were then being exfiltrated to China means that you have a, just a long string now of criminal pleas and some convictions, you know, trial convictions for um, misappropriation of trade secrets. Those cases are all things where there's some national interest hook to it, right? It's it's fan blades for jet engines and and drug products and things that you could sort of tie up in the United States intellectual property as well. But you know, it's a, now it is a real concern. And and so on the defense side, you know, you still like to be able to say in this case, no one's going to jail, don't worry. And on the but on the plaintiff side, clients are asking that question now. And that's that's sort of a new phenomenon as well. So on the plaintiff side, where you have an employee leave and they have evidence of misappropriation, now we're seeing much more of this sort of initial question of first day, client wants to know, should we, are we going down a civil litigation route or is this a case where we might consider making some sort of report to the DOJ and seeing if we can just get the, the FBI to take this Yeah, because this person, you know, is going to flee to wherever. Yeah, um, absolutely right, Greg, um, and not to hijack, but I actually did have a case with my former partner, um, Paul Kelly. We, we defended um, a boat engineer who was um, criminally indicted along with a former colleague for economic espionage. Fortunately, he was acquitted, but there was a parallel civil case that went on long after. So we do see these cases that was tied to DOD, but again, it was a very unusual, there's not a lot of precedent for it. So it wasn't a lot of guidance. Um, and again, unfortunately we had a successful outcome, but it's happened. So it's going to happen again. It should be on you know, all of our radars for, the, for those reasons. Um, and I, I know we just have a couple of minutes left and I think what would be really helpful from all of you, I, we've talked a little bit about the advice we would give if our clients so generously asked us, um, what can you tell us now to help us down the line? I know that we rarely have that privilege and we've touched on some great things, but if you wouldn't mind um, each of you, maybe we can start with Pyle just briefly. Is there anything else you might advise clients from a, the, the fortunate perspective of, pro, of a proactive uh, piece of advice? What would you say? Really take these agreements, the B2B agreements very seriously because now there's going to be a potential criminal aspect to it too. Um, yes, the law isn't very settled yet, but the DOJ is not backing down. DOL is not backing down. FTC is not backing down. So be be very aware. And like Lindsay said, get outside counsel to help when you are entering into these B2B uh, agreements. Lindsay, anything to add? I would also just add when you're thinking about agreements with your employees to take a step back and have kind of an overall policy or strategy of what are you trying to accomplish here and then work with a lawyer to try to come up with the agreements that most narrowly, you know, in connection with whatever like physical or um, IT security measures you have in place, what what do you need from the agreements that can most narrowly protect your interest? And then sort of as a related piece, revisit that because the law is evolving so much. It's something where you don't want to have 10 year old agreements that no one has thought about. And then suddenly you, you have someone who you think is a bad actor and you need to enforce. I think you need to think periodically about are our agreements still up to date? Our agreements that we had people who were signed 10 years ago, do those still work? Or do we need to think about whether there's, you know, a bonus program or some other piece of consideration where we could ask them easily to sign a new document? Right. Anything to add? You know, I I think most the, the hypothetical you were saying, Sarah, like if you if we had the if we were in this joyous position of being able to give this advice, and I think that's so true, so often the reality is a client you know implements a employment agreement that they had their corporate counsel put together at the very beginning and never touches it again it's just the thing that we've been using for 40 years so if we can get if we can have that kind con- if we're able to have that conversation it's a great opportunity both to provide value to the client to to show that the law has changed mean, certainly in massachusetts the law literally has changed and those old agreements are no longer going to be enforceable. So that is a that's a great stepping off point to then talk about what are we really trying to do here? I mean, are you trying to have a beautiful document or are you trying to protect your conf- legitimately protect confidential information? And if, and if that's the case, 
then there are other things we can do. In addition to having a beautiful document, we can also have different uh, techniques to protect your trade secrets through training, through policies, and through you know, practical measures so that you don't have to ever rely on the agreement. Um, and then if you are going to have a beautiful agreement, keep a copy. Uh, I think all of us probably have this experience of like you're going to you're rushing to court. You're, you're like writing the complaint. And then you say, OK, so for exhibit A, we're going to have the guy's non-compete agreement. Can you send me the signed copy? And then sort of this long silence. And then, well, we can't find it. It's, we know we signed one, but we can't find the signed copy. So you can have the most beautiful document in the world. But if it's just in draft form, it's not going to do you much good. That is very important advice and wonderful to close out on that. Obviously, there's a ton to talk about here, and I think we're going to see an evolution in cases, so hopefully we can all get back together in the future. But thank you to all of our panelists today. I'm so grateful you all agreed to participate, and thanks to everyone who listened in to us for the past hour. Um, I hope everyone enjoys their afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thanks.